Money Morning Podcast. Now, markets are selling off quite a bit at the moment, and it all comes back to what's happening in China. There's a property developer over there called Evergrande, which is officially the world's most indebted property developer. And it's causing a lot of investors to take a risk off position. And this has massive implications for Aussie investors in particular because of the range of commodities that are found on the ASX. So I have Murray Dawes on and we talk all things commodities. Here's Murray and I. Check it out. Hey, Murray, how's it going over there? Good, Lucky. How you doing, mate? Yeah, yeah, pretty good. Uh, new abode, pretty comfortable. Um, nice, looks lovely. But, but yeah, uh, despite my domestic bliss, there's a bit of uh, international chaos playing out in markets <laughs> at the moment. Yeah. So we've we've got Evergrande in China, which is the world's most indebted property developer. I believe they have 300 to 400 billion in debt on their books. And the news is, is that they will not be able to service that debt so it's causing quite a bit of a sell-off today on the ASX, uh, amongst other things and other markets. Uh, so what we're going to do today is have a sort of broad chat about commodities in light of what's happening in China. Now, straight off the bat, is Evergrande a major problem for the share market? What are your thoughts, Mary? Yeah, well, um, I mean, I, I wrote an article for Money Morning just um, on the weekend uh, on Saturday saying it might be time to pull up stumps and... Uh, um, go fishing for a while because uh, I thought the the risk levels were rising and and the Evergrande situation is is one of those. I think it's a wild card. It's still very early days. Uh, we're all still waiting to see whether China's going to bail them out or what type of bailout there will be a restructure. Um, it, it's going to be something's coming down the pike, uh, but maybe we need to see things get a bit out of control first. Um, the the timeline for them is there's a bank. Um, I, th I think loan due today, uh, but there's actually about 83 million uh, due on Thursday um, for two notes, two dollar notes. Um, so the, there's a sort of uh, timeline on when things could go a bit pear shaped, I guess. So it, it can be any time from now over the next few days uh, where we discover um, that they haven't got the funds, that uh, the bonds are possibly going to be offline for a while because they, they suspended trading in them last week for a short term. But obviously, we've all been through these sort of things before where, where they say, oh, well, we're going to suspend it for a week and then it's actually forever and the company goes under. So um, it is an explosive situation. It's, it's a situation that can lead to contagion. Um, and you are seeing strong selling pressure across the board in the property market over there. Uh, you'll know that the three red line policy is, is crimping their ability to um, raise debt levels, but also land. Um, I mean, the property market already over there is in a bit of trouble as a result of all of this. You've got land sales by value crashing by 90% um, in August. So, uh, you know, there is already some pretty serious issues out there. Evergrande is the, the linchpin. And it definitely is something that can explode and create um, far more contagion across the board and probably slip outside the property, outside the financial markets. Does it slip outside to global banks? Um, we don't know yet. Uh, but, but it is a, a, a situation where I guess I'm happy to sell a few things and, and um, just see how, these, how it pans out. It's a bit of a wild card. And uh, I think we've been through these situations where we know when things go pear-shaped 
the authorities will step in at some point and try to soften the blow um, uh, so that it doesn't go completely uh, out of control. But I think it's uh, definitely time to be uh, just a little bit wary. Well, I would echo that sentiment quite a bit, Murray. Um, I guess if you're trading, it might might make sense to sort of lean towards caution at this stage. But uh, my my thesis is that this is a sort of a hiccup and a, sort of a, a bare narrative trap. Um, so that's that's generally my perspective. Uh, but you know a lot more about those bond notes than I do. So uh, if if you you're seeing something there that uh, that uh, others aren't, then that would be very interesting. I noticed you've got the the Hang Seng here, which is the one of the primary Chinese indices. Uh, I was wondering you could tell us a bit more about what you're seeing on the uh, the Hang Seng. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it for me it, it does actually look, look a bit uh, dangerous. Now, now China was um, closed uh, for holidays yesterday, so so the only uh, way out for a bit of de-risking was through the Hang Seng. Um, so that was down nearly four percent yesterday. Um, and and look, it's just a situation. If I was to show you just technically why, uh, when I looked at this yesterday, I was like, wow, this is actually a pretty interesting chart long term. Uh, this is the monthly chart, you know, going back to 1987. Uh, so obviously a big, long, strong uptrend going on here. And the thing I just want want to note is uh, that we actually had the all-time high a few years ago. And uh, often bull markets end with a double top, uh, you know, where you've got the, uh, the old high there from 08. And then we've done a lot of work. We had the 08 crash, the rally back to the high. And we actually peaked uh, a few years ago. Um, 2017-18, and it has actually been trending down since. Um, so that's the first thing to point out is that the double top has happened and, and, and the Hang Seng has actually peaked. And the, the next thing is if we just look at the trend that we've had going on to the upside here, and it's all still intact at the moment. And, and what I look for, uh, uh, you know, we have the, the initial wave, then you have the correction, then you have the, the, the initial wave, then the correction. And that usually pulls back into where I talk about these buy and sell zones, 75 to 87% retracement of this wave is where you often find the buying support if the trend is gonna continue. And so again, we've seen the same thing on this next wave, uh, which happened during the COVID crash. So prices pulling back into the buy zone there of this wave. And this is what's sort of interesting is I'm just looking at this most recent wave and, and I will show you just because I think it is worth um, pointing out how these things work. Sorry about that. I'll just fix this up for you quickly. So you're doing a, a retracement of some type there. So here I'm looking at the waves and where these buying and selling pressure come in. So here's, here's your most recent major wave, right? And this is where my theory of these buy and sell zones of where the buying and selling pressure come in. And if we just look at how price action has happened over this last few years in the Hang Seng, you can see lots of work done heading back to this point of control, which is the midpoint there. Uh, yep. You've got the selling pressure coming in the sell zone, right? Back to the point of control. We've got the buying pressure here in the buy zone, back to the point of control. And again, the last wave higher failed in the sell zone back through the point of control. And this is where the selling pressure we're seeing now 
is actually breaking down through that uh, point of control, heading back into the bottom of the range. Really, this should head down into that buy zone again. So that's down to 2,000 to 22,000. That's, that's another, what, 5 to 10% below where it is now. I think that is on the cards like a very high probability and could be in the near term on the back of this Evergrande thing. Uh, but the major point is if, if we do have that sell-off, which I think is pretty much a, a, a very high probability, in the really big picture, things, things get really pear-shaped if it starts breaking down below, uh, like if it doesn't hold, oh, yeah. actually breaks down through there. You're looking at, on a monthly chart, like a real rolling over of that Hang Seng, which actually peaked um, years ago. So I'll just pull that back out. Uh, and so this setup where we've got this Evergrande selling, the market's down 4% and on its lows, and we've got this news coming this week, it is actually set up um, to be quite bad uh, in the short term. Um, obviously, the buying will come in, but it's just that for me, technically, that Hang Seng uh, tells yeah. me that, that the situation is quite stressed and that the uh, selling pressure could actually accelerate under here. So that, that was my major point on that. Well, I guess here's the big question for Aussie investors, Murray, is, is this going to continue feeding through to iron ore? Uh, because, you know, the SX200 very heavily dependent on Rio, FMG, BHP. Um, is that going to hurt Aussie iron ore exports? Um, what well, are your thoughts I mean, on that? You know, here, here's the... Uh, it's a nasty price. red bar there. Uh, this, yeah, it's already crashed, right? Yeah. So, so uh, this is the long-term chart of uh, iron ore. We've got from 2016, from the lows, you can see a nice strong trend going on here. Now, that uptrend is actually still intact. And again, if I'm just looking at the most recent wave, where should the buying support come in? Uh, well, it's around here. So it's around 100, 100 bucks to 120. You'd hope there'd be some buying support that this crash is going to start to find some support soon. But it's in panic stations at the moment. And I think Evergrande is accelerating that. But you've also got the fact that Vale or Vale will be more coming back online next year. Oh, yeah. Uh, so you're going to have that ramp up uh, in um, supply. And really, uh, um, Evergrande has, what, 700 projects across 223 cities that are, that are grinding to a halt. Needs a lot uh, of steel. Which needs and, a lot of iron ore. Yeah, and but they're now, now going to be offloading those and the construction on those stopping, grinding to a halt. And also, I mean, the selling has been across the board in those con, uh, construction uh, developer stocks, right? So it, the top 10 that have all under this pressure from the three red, red line policy, in one night last week, they were all down around 10% on the night. So the, the, the situation isn't just Evergrande. There's a lot of other things going on uh, beneath the surface. So often with these issues, what we know on the surface is a tiny amount of what's actually going on below. So what, what I'm often wary of is that news like this can be a little this issue that, that set, sets off a lot of other things that all of a sudden come out. Like Buffett says, you only know when the tide goes out who's been swimming naked. And I'd say in a, in a Chinese property market that's been pumped as hard as it has for the last decade, where they just absolutely throw everything, including the kitchen sink, on the, the amount of credit they shove into oh, yeah. the system to keep things going. 
So there'd be plenty of people swimming naked out there if this does actually turn down. And I do agree with you that what's the chance that this is the moment, you know, the, the, the Minsky moment uh, when things are going to go pear-shaped? It's probably pretty low. And, and, yeah. and the government's going to step in somehow and they'll probably chuck $100 billion at it and, and um, slowly wind things down and make sure that uh, contagion doesn't take hold. I mean, we've been here before. That's probably what's going to happen. But it's just these sort of situations is a moment where you've got to go, okay, what if it, things go pear-shaped and do I want to be left uh, massively exposed if it does? So for me, it's just uh, I'm not selling everything or getting out or scared yep. or, or anything. It's just, you know, take a few profits here. We've, we've had a great run for a year. Um, I've taken a few little profits. I'm still long. The, the market yep. still, still looks great. The trend hasn't turned down yet. But this is just a moment when you've just got to say, right, well, I'll just uh, make sure that if things do go pear-shaped, I'm not scrambling out like everyone else with the market down 5% overnight or whatever. Well, I guess it's a bit of a double-edged sword. The market is opaque and you don't know what's underneath the surface. But at the same time, you can also bank on that centrally planned approach to the economy coming through. So it's it's a tough one to call at this stage. I was just wondering what your thoughts are on uh, sort of other commodities, uh, Murray, because there are some strange narratives out there. We've seen things like nickel and copper hold up reasonably well, yeah. uranium go through the roof, whereas iron ore sold off. So it's a bit more of a mixed bag there. Um, yeah, well, do you have any? Do you have anything to share with us on those those things? Yeah, well, Murray? look, I mean, if if things start to really take hold and you see the construction industry over there really start to tip, then there are other commodities that will be hurt. I mean, if you look at copper, I think I read this morning, it was, the figure was, I was trying to find it again, but around 10 or 20% of copper demand uh, in China is construction. So, so you know, I, I guess you'd say it's not going to make it fall off the uh, cliff, but it will certainly still have an effect. Um, and, and things like coking coal, you'd think steel, cement, uh, those sort of things would be rolling over. Um, but, you know, I'm not seeing any pressure on coking coal at the moment. Yeah. Um, so they're still on its highs. Um, so, yeah, and I think copper is looking a little dangerous. I'll just show you quickly um, the, the chart on, on copper just so we can have an idea of what's going on. And I have shown uh, this chart to people in the past and this is why i'm just a little wary of, of copper is if we look at this very long-term chart of copper going back to 2000 uh, the main point again is that uh, the market moves in a series of false breaks um, where, where, you, where you create new highs and often if the false break if the, if the rally can't carry on and you have a false break that can often be the beginning of a big leg down so again you have a new new high created uh, in 2011, uh, couldn't carry on with it, false break, and sold off for years. So we're in a similar situation where we've had this massive spike from the COVID crash. It's really rallied hard. We've created a new high, and then the false break is happening. Now, the, short, the trend is up short term, yeah. and it, you, the fundamentals are probably strong. So you know, this false break may just have a mean reversion back to the 20-month moving average, and then take off again to the upside. So it's not saying, I'm not saying it's about to completely crash, 
It's just that the technical situation at the moment is of an overstretched market, overbought. It's been rejected from an all-time high, had a false break, and we've seen many times in the past when this happens, that can be the beginning of a bit of a mean reversion event or even a major sell-off. So technically, copper does look a bit dangerous, and having uh, the Chinese property market, uh, you know, possibly on the, on the edge killing over. Of, of a pretty serious downturn, um, I would say I'd be a little bit, you know, wary. Well, I'm on record as saying uh, copper's going to stay above US $4 uh, for the rest of the year. So we'll see how that plays out. I might prove to be dismally wrong. Or uh, or if it pushes higher, I might be underestimating it. So, um, But what we do know is that uh, there are going to be some big moves out of this. So I was wondering if you could talk about one of the biggest moves on the market which is uranium. It's just gone absolutely nuts on the back of some news, which I'm sure you're well abreast of, Murray. Could you give us a run through what's happening with uranium at the moment? Yeah, well, look, I mean, the, the situation in uranium has been shifting over the last year. We're talking about something we everyone knows from Fukushima. Um, uranium uh, all of a sudden became the pariah commodity and uh, Germany shut off their nuclear industry and uh, Japan shut theirs down. And it was a long, very long multi, like a decade long sell-off in uranium. And you also had uh, from leftover from the Cold War, you had a lot of warheads that were being decommissioned, that were uh, adding to supply. So you had a massively oversupplied market. You had a lowering demand. Uh, you had people thinking there was no future for nuclear energy. You had prices below the cost of digging the stuff out of the ground. You had mines all mothballed. You certainly didn't have people going and searching for more uranium. So when, when those situations happen, that they go on for a very long time, it sets up a situation where if the market does shift back into uh, a situation where demand overtakes supply, the, the shift in uh, the, the, the rate of uh, uh, prices accelerating out of that decade-long sell-off can be huge because it takes so long to bring on new mine supply. It takes takes more to go and discover what's out there. It, so it, the setup in uranium is such that uh, it is ready for this long-term shift um, and Japan's making noises of possibly increasing uh, uranium um, of, of going back into nuclear. And really yep. uranium is that baseload generator um, that can be used um, that doesn't, put a lot of carbon into the atmosphere. Um, so that situation was already there when Sprott came in and set up this fund to buy uranium. And, and the way it's set up is this uh, at the market situation, which we don't really have in Australia, where you people could buy shares of this Sprott fund. And that money is like an IPO. It's like that money is going straight through to the manager. And then that they, they then take that and then buy uranium. So they were then going in and they bought a huge chunk of uranium um, over the, the opening of this. They had a $300 million fund they raised to $1.3 billion. A lot of money flowing into that. They, they went in and started buying into this uranium market that was on the edge of shifting demand supply anyway. This is what's happening over this uh, very long-term period where the uranium market is shifting. The stocks have been rallying for the last year. 
So this is sort of coming in after the rally is already starting to get going and it's kicked it into high gear. So you've had this massive spike on the back of this news of Sprott and new funds coming in. So it raises the risk that you're going to get a bit of a spike and failure on that yep. because it's a bit of a, it's not really demand from uh, nuclear Sort of uh, artificial demand. Going in, yeah, it's a bit of artificial demand that's coming in, cornering the market, creating a bit of a frenzy. Uh, so uh, I think the long-term trend is up. I think the fundamentals for uranium are looking better and it's going to take some time. I mean, prices have to go higher than where they are now to really inspire the mothballed mines to come back online. So yep. they're, they're still not high enough. And, and so I think they will ultimately head that way. Um but I think we're, what we're seeing at the moment is a bit of a, a spike uh, and possible failure on the back of this, this Sprott news, which is sort of cornering the market, really, because they, they bought like a third of, of uh, annual production. Um, you know, and, and if people are then going to buy more of these shares because they're starting to trend up, um, you, you can create this you know, huge um, sucking of uh, supply out of the market at a time when the demand supply shift is just occurring, which is probably why he set it up, right? Because he knew that that would uh, have that effect. So I think that you're all up uranium, very bullish, um, but just wary of the fact that you're going to see this. And, and we've seen, you know, it, it's fallen, uh, had two days where the uranium ETF fell 10% and then 7% in the last couple of days. So the, the supply will come out of the woodwork um, when it spikes like that. Um, and you'll get some selling from other quarters um, when it gets a bit out of control. Uh, but really, all, all up on bullish, we, we got long Paladin. Oh, yeah. We bought Paladin last year at 12 cents um, in Pivot Trader. So that's been, I think, my best trade. Uh, yeah. It was nearly up a thousand percent when it was up a dollar 10. So, um, yeah, pretty happy with that. Yeah, nice one. Um, sort of uh, at the moment, maybe a trader's minefield, but. Uh... If you can select the right uranium companies, there could be some uh, some gems in there for investors. Um, you know, it, it, again, highly speculative stuff. These these tipping these companies that uh, that haven't actually got a functioning project yet, but it's very interesting to watch. Now, there was uh, another commodity I wanted to pick your brain about. It was nickel. Um, do you think nickel is in danger here? Well, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't think so. I, I just, I like the long-term play on nickel. So, I, and it's been- the battery uh, side of things, Murray? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So a, a dec if I've got a decade long idea of where I want to be, um, you know, it, it probably is copper and nickel. Um, so uh, I, I do like that long-term fundamental story. And I mean, yeah, we're long in Pivot Trader, long nickel from last year, long long rare earths, long lithium. Um, so that sort of battery metal um, theme, which is a huge one, um, I, I do believe in it long term, but that, that doesn't mean you're not going to get um, shakeouts along the way, which is what happens. Um, and, and I was really quite bullish on nickel just the other week when it was breaking out to new multi-year highs. Yeah. Uh, but but yet again, this situation has created the false break, and it couldn't couldn't carry on with it. So it's not ready yet. So maybe we're in for a, a bit more um, work that needs to be done. We need to find out what's going to happen um, with this China situation um, before it can uh, head back up again. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm I'm a bit wary of of commodities right now because they've been so hot, and and yep. because they are coming off the boil. Um, uh, but I think, yeah, long-term, I think it's, uh, if we do have a big shakeout, that's where you want to be buying. 
one final thing to pick your brain on, Murray, is uh, gas. Uh, there's some big moves afoot in the gas uh, industry right now. Uh, renewables are bizarrely forcing some places back to coal, which is the most perverse thing. It is a sort of short-term hiccup, most likely. But uh, what are you seeing in the gas market? Yeah, well, look, look it's, a, it's a fascinating situation, I think. I mean, LNG's been a bit oversupplied um, in the last few years, and, and there was thoughts that it would be oversupplied until 2025. Uh, you've got a lot of new supply coming online uh, from uh, America, from Russia, from Qatar, from Australia. And uh, the fundamentals there were looking a bit iffy. But um, you've got this situation that's just developed where Europe is going into winter now with the lowest um, inventory of gas for over a decade. They haven't been able to get the supplies to them. And they're really fighting with Asia to get their LNG supplies. So I'll just show you quickly what's going on in uh, the Asian LNG market. I wow. mean, that is not That's a vertical. chart that you see often, right? That's just uh, a straight line up, really. That is a straight line up. So that is a market that is completely uh, caught off guard and, and, and is going ballistic. Now, what's going on? Is so with the, and just to give you a sense of the price action, I mean, there was six dollars uh, at the start of the year, and it's just hit twenty seven dollars last night. So you know you're looking at four approaching five hundred percent move. Now this sort of a move can have very large repercussions across many industries, and and one of the reasons uh, this is all happening is Europe was already. Um, sort of on edge with their gas supply um, over this last period. And then you've got in the UK, the, uh, in the North Sea, the wind died. And so and they've really, they've got like nearly 20, 25% of their energy is the wind farms uh, in the UK. Yeah. And, and they died out. So you've got no electricity generation from there. So of course you need backup, you need gas uh, to back that up. And look, they're, they're killing all of their coal uh, by 2024, right? Wow. And so then they've had to get the gas and they've also asked um, coal generators to turn back on. Um, and uh, the, so the, then you've got a situation where you've already got undersupplied um, uh, situation in Europe for gas. And then you've got this happened on top. And so electricity prices in uh, the UK went just completely nuts. Um, and I'll even uh, just show, just in case people hadn't seen it. Uh, so this is uh, the electricity price in uh, the UK and, and Germany over the last few years from 2020, right? So this is what happened just recently in UK energy prices, right? Going from 100 to 300 um, megawatt for, per megawatt hour, um, that's, a huge spike, which of course will come back, but this sort of instability in the system as a result of renewables coming in and sort of displacing uh, baseload generation and then the need to back it up uh, with gas and, and this massive spike in gas prices, which is now closing down businesses. You've got retailers uh, in the UK, energy retailers that are falling over. And you've got uh, fertilizer, for example, they need like, plenty of gas. They're closing down. Uh, you've got lots of other industries, uh, ceramics. If, if I do say, uh, if we just look at what this article on Reuters said, just so that I can uh, check it out, um, 
So industrial users with heavy gas consumption, including steelworks, cement, ceramics, glassware, fertilizers, petrochemicals, will have to consider whether to reduce output or close temporarily. So, so this sort of a, a situation where you've got these energy going four or 500%, that then has massive effect on flow and effect on other industries that then can't cope. Uh, and, it, and now you've got, as you said, uh, the gas price is going so hard that European countries are switching back to coal. So you've got yeah. a situation where we're trying to head in this direction and because it destabilizes markets, it's head people in the other direction. So it's sort of a, a bit of a, a weird uh, situation, yeah. but, but it's something that people have got to understand because this is Australia's future as well um, that we're heading towards. And we, we don't have the solution yet. Um, so And we do need that gas to back things up going forward. Um, even though they're, they're announcing that they're going to get these hydrogen, you know, part hydrogen, yeah. part gas, like 10, 15% hydrogen and the rest gas. Um, I just think the, the situation is lining up that gas has to be seen as a bridging fuel. And it, it, it does end up cutting greenhouse gas emissions by over 50%. Um, nothing. You switch from coal exactly. So, so you may as well have that. And, and, and as a backup, you're not using it all the time anyway. Um, but uh, I think the situation is sort of there that the fundamentals for LNG are stacking up um, much better than they have. So things like you know, and I've been banging on banging the drum about things like Woodies and and whatever. But there are other opportunities, yeah. beach energy. Uh, that people aren't willing to touch. And you've got a situation where the, the fund managers are actually selling those stocks because their ESG credentials are that they're saying, oh, we can't, we can't touch yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is a bit strange. It's weird. So you've got this situation where the fundamentals are starting to go the other way and you've got the gas prices going up 500%, but you've got the fund managers selling those stocks because they think it's terrible that they should ever own them. Um, so I just think that there's a bit of a, a weird situation which creates a, a, an opportunity for people who are, are willing to go into that space. I, I have one final thought here. Maybe in a bizarre way, this leads us back to sort of uh, SMRs, do small modular reactors and uh, sort of Bill Gates's TerraPower plan for these small uh nuclear power plants and i think that that would be a very interesting thing to to look at um from a sort of research perspective uh i know i will be but murray uh it's been a really engaging chat with you today i really loved your your quick run through of those charts and the various levels uh i certainly learned a lot and i'm sure everyone paying attention to this also learned a lot um i'm going to finish off and say thank you so much murray for coming on i had a ball and Cheers, i hope yep yeah we'll uh we'll chat again soon hopefully that would be great murray and uh i'm sure the emails will fly back and forth over the course of the week so um you have a lovely one murray and i'll speak to you soon all right cheers mate see you later yeah well murray has his finger on the pulse when it comes to a whole range of commodities i thought his chat about uranium nickel copper LNG was really, really interesting. Now, Murray also runs the Australian Small Cap Investigator Service as the investment director. Definitely check that out if you're looking for a publication to guide you in the small cap space. As always, like, subscribe, get in touch. We'd love to hear from you.